So this morning we are continuing on in our sermon series in Matthew, and we are coming to the end. How many people have enjoyed this sermon series? Yay! I know my husband. <laughs> my husband doesn't like books. I probably shouldn't do that to my husband, sure. <laughs> That's true. He doesn't like book series, so he'll be happy when we get to the end of this. But I, I have really enjoyed it. And um, I said this before, for, for me... This has been good because, I mean, how often do we get to go deep into one book of the Bible in church, right, and, and in community groups and really study it in depth? Some of us, you know, particularly um, those of us who, who maybe have been saved for a while, um, we don't even read some books of the Bible anymore, right? Like, oh, I know Matthew. Oh, I got the Gospels, right? I mean, there's certain things we just don't even give time to. So I've, I've really enjoyed um, going through this book. And the passage that we're going to look at today is significant because we're coming to the end. This is the last of Jesus's major teachings um, in this gospel. Everything that follows is, you know, the, the arrest and the trial and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and all of that is really, really powerful and good stuff. But this is the last time that we are going to see Jesus teaching in these long um, sort of sermons. And so up to this point, we've been following his ministry. We've watched him interact with the disciples and with the Pharisees. We've seen him perform miracles. Uh, We've seen him enter the city triumphantly and, you know, put people in their place. I mean, this has been an awesome time. And now he is teaching this final sermon, I guess. And we know that um, in, in last week's passage, we saw him basically starting to prepare people for something that is coming. We've seen this throughout, right? He's telling the disciples, look, you know, this, it's, it's about to get real serious. <laughs> like, it's been kind of cool so far. Yeah, we've had some run-ins with some folk here and there, and clearly there's some people who don't like me. But really, it's about to come to the end. I am going to be killed. And he's been trying to prepare the people who have been following, the people that he loves for what's coming. And I think in these last two passages, last week and this week, we're seeing that really be driven home. He is letting us know that, yes, I'm about to go, but I'm going to return. And he's preparing us for what life, um, sort of in between the empty tomb and the second coming, ought to be like. He's preparing us. And so in the passage that we're going to hear this morning, um, we find three parables. And each of these parables are given to teach, like I said, what it's going to be like when the king returns. And we find in all three there are rewards for those who um, have been doing what they're supposed to be doing, and there is judgment for those who have not been doing what they are supposed to be doing. Um, And so, like I said, the passage this morning, it's a long one. So I sit here because it's not going to come up on the screen. You guys are going to listen to it. And um, I will not make you listen to me read it because that's just a lot of me. So um, Tyler's going to play a CD. And even if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to just hear the word of the Lord. At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! 
Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir! Sir! They said, Open the door for us! But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servants, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the bag of gold from him, and give it to the one who has ten bags. For those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. 
I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and, and, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, ah, to eternal life. This is the word of God. Amen. So, um... These passages, these parables, at first hearing, I think they sound a little bit harsh. I think it's fair to say. And over the past uh, two Sundays, or a few Sundays actually, we, we've definitely seen the not-so-softer side of Jesus. There's been a lot of talk of judgment, right? And people being thrown into fiery pits and darkness and <laughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth, which has always been a very strange phrase to me, gnashing of teeth. It's, it's a weird image that comes in my mind when I see that. But so it's not been the, the best or the happiest moments in the gospel. And um, I think it's safe to say that these are, these are topics that we like to sort of brush over for the most part. I mean, for one, when it comes to particularly parables like this, like the ten virgins, it's hard to figure out. I mean, we, we're, it's clear that someone has done something wrong and that they are going to be punished for it. <laughs> It is not necessarily so clear what exactly they did wrong. Um, who are we like them? Like, did I not have some oil, Lord? Make sure I got some oil. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's hard to figure out these stories, right? It's sometimes hard to figure out where we fit in the story. Um, I remember when I first became a Christian and I was reading through these, uh, this particular portion of Scripture, and I had done the best I could do with my little NIV teen study Bible to figure out, like, who I was. Like, my, I hope I'm the virgins who were prepared. What does it mean to have the oil? What is the lamp? And I'm doing everything I can to try to figure this passage out. And ultimately, I concluded, okay, you know what? I have been told up to this point that if I have accepted Jesus in my heart, I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to just have to leave it at that. <laughs> that was the best I could come up with. Um, I think the reason that, that these passages are things that we like to avoid is because we don't really like to think about, talk about God's judgment, God's wrath. And, I mean, honestly, for me at least, that 
hell, judgment, all that kind of stuff, that was the last barrier that I had to get past before I could become a Christian. So I I had finally come to see that, you know, the Bible was a credible and authoritative source, so it made sense for me to look there to figure out stuff about God. Um, I had accepted that Jesus was a revolutionary, that he wasn't at all this sort of passive, you know, whatever kind of figure that I had thought he was. And I had even come to realize that Christianity was not a European invention designed to oppress black people. I was ready. (laughs) I was ready to accept Jesus. But then there was hell. And I could not for the life of me reconcile how this loving God, this God who's supposed to be seeking after me, who, who loves me enough to die on a cross for me, would then send people to hell. And, you know, the, I talked to people about this, and, and every person I talked to gave me this, you know, the basic variation of the same pad answer, which is, you know, well, God doesn't send anybody to hell. You know, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God loves us. But people choose to go to hell because they don't accept Jesus Christ. And that's fine, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you that, that that did not do it for me. It just didn't. And so when I finally became a Christian, while I would love to tell you that I had figured hell out and I came to a place where I, you know, yes, I understand, I had not. That was one of the things that I said, you know what, I'm just going to have to put this in the file of things I will not understand until Jesus gets back. And, um, and that's okay. And so I became a Christian and hell was just something that I, you know, when I would talk to non-Christians about it, I'm like, yeah, those are just a great point that you raise about hell. I have nothing to share with you about that. I wrestle with it too. <laughs> and I want to say, just as a side note, for, for folks in here, for my believers, that's okay, right? It's okay. It is okay to say, I don't <laughs> serve a God <laughs> who is much, much too big for us to ever fully comprehend, Right? There, is, there are going to be things from today till the day you die that we will wrestle with and struggle with, and that is good. It means we are in relationship. We should bring those things before the Lord. We should not, again, like I said, settle for the pad answer. So like I said, I went ahead, I, you know, I became a Christian. I said, this is, you know, it's not, I don't understand it, and I'm I believe I'll understand it when Christ returns, but I'm going to move forward. And I've moved forward with most of my life. And still, hell is one of those things that, you know, I would prefer not to talk about. Like Pastor David said a couple Sundays ago, for me, it would have been really, really nice if Jesus had just sort of stopped talking in the middle of Matthew 21. Like, that would have been awesome because I could, you know, take or leave (laughs) some of the other stuff. But he didn't. And so that means that we need to understand it. And what I want to say today um, in each of these passages that we see, we find important lessons, again, about what life in the kingdom is supposed to be like. And I want to suggest to you that not only are these passages ones that we should not avoid, but that the good news, and this is, is, again, I'm saying this to myself as much as to you, the good news in this is actually God's judgment. And I'm going to make that clear. Hopefully, I'll make that clear to you at the end of this sermon. But that is the good news. So at the close of um, last week's passage, we find Jesus starting to go into these, these parables and teaching and these parables. And I'm not going to go into that in detail, but the thing that you need to hold on to just to set up where we're going today is that what Jesus is starting to talk about is the importance of watchfulness. One of the things that we need to take away from that is 
He is saying, look, I am returning. That is a fact, and you ought to remain watchful. And this is important because I think that as Christians, we, you know, we only kind of believe sometimes in the second coming. For the most part, we fall into two camps, and not just us in New Community, but the body as a whole. You have some folk who are way too invested in the second coming. There are, they're trying to look for the signs. When is it going to be? I can tell you that on May 5th, 2022, based on what somebody said, Jesus is returning. I mean, we get ridiculous. We're trying to figure out when it's going to be, when it's going to happen. Then on the other side, you have those of us who kind of sort of, you know, only loosely believe that it will happen. We read these stories and we kind of believe, okay, yeah, Jesus is coming again, but it's not something that has any real meaning or impact on the way that we live our lives day to day. And so I think that what the passages from last week definitely want to drive home for us is Jesus is coming back. He is returning. So this week, then, we need to figure out what that looks like. If we believe that Jesus is coming back, then that ought to impact our lives in some way. If we take it seriously that the Savior will return and that he will judge and that he will give reward to those who have followed him, that ought to impact the way we move through the world. It ought to impact our relationship with him. So building on this, I think that today's um, parables can be summed up in this phrase, and I'm going to say this multiple times throughout this sermon, but if you truly believe he is returning, then get ready for his return. Those who are ready will do the work of the Father. And finally, those who do, the work of the, who do not do the work of the Father will be judged. So much like these parables, um, this sounds a little bit harsh. <laughs> but again, I want to submit to you that this is good news. God's judgment is good news. So let's, let's get to it. All right, so the first parable is about the ten virgins. And some Bibles call it the 10 bridesmaids, but really virgins is a more appropriate term. We don't really know a lot about what they, what role they would have played in this wedding, because we don't know a whole, whole, whole lot about what wedding customs at that time would have looked like. But we do know that these are unmarried women and that more than likely they then would have been virgins. So the story tells us that these 10 virgins are going off to meet the bridegroom, and they've brought along with them um, their lamps. Now, these lamps aren't like little lanterns that you hold. These would have been really large, dome-shaped lamps. And the way that they worked was that you would have um, rags soaked in oil, and the rags would sort of serve as the wick. And these lamps could provide a whole lot of light, and as long as you had a lot of oil, they could last for a long period of time. So what we do know from this text and loosely from um, Jewish wedding customs in general is that what would happen often is that the bridegroom would go from his parents' house to the bride's house. And at the bride's house, they would get married. And then after this would happen, there would be this processional where they would go to a separate place, often the groom's house, for the reception, for the party, for the dinner. And so these 10 women were supposed to be a part of this processional. And obviously the light and the oil would have been useful for lighting the way so they could see where they're going as they move from point A to point B. And there are a lot of points, right? They have to move from where they're going to the place where they're waiting for the groom and then from that place to wherever it is that the party is. So what we see in this um, 
in this story is that basically five of the ten women bring extra oil, and the other five do not bring extra oil. And so wherever they get to when they're waiting for this guy to show up, it takes a long time for him to get there. And we don't know why, but it takes a long time for him to get there, so they fall asleep. And there's nothing wrong with falling asleep. It does, them being asleep doesn't seem to be the issue at hand, right? The issue is what happens when they wake up. They wake up and it's time to go and they're trimming their lights because they've been off for a long time and now we know we need more oil, we need to get stuff going so we can make our journey. And the five women who didn't bring extra oil realize, oh, we have a problem. We don't have enough oil to provide the light we need to get where we're going. Now, I heard someone preach a sermon on this one time and I said, if I ever preach on this, I am going to correct it. So this, <laughs> sorry, but this, this, this man preached the sermon and he took a, a time like to make a little side note about how this is, you know, well, you know how women are, you know how y'all are ladies, you know, you're not going to help each other out. Like we're, you know, catty little women who bickering and fighting. And I'm like, that is, and you can kind of hear, even in the, the audio of what I played for you today for the sermon, you kind of hear that same tone, like they're, no, get your own oil, you know, like... <laughs> That's not what is happening here at all. Like, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, if the women who had the oil had shared, then more than likely none of them would have had enough oil to get to where they needed to go. So this isn't like women being, you know, funky. This isn't speaking anything about the nature of women or anything like that. It's just, it, it's kind of like when you're on an airplane. It's not selfish or catty for you to put the oxygen over your face first before you help the person next to you. It's just something that is necessary so everybody can breathe in the end. All right, okay. So I'm sorry, that just deeply disturbed me. But the... <laughs> So getting back to this passage, um, basically the women who don't have enough oil, they go out to try to get some, and by the time they get themselves together and they show up at the place where the party is happening, the door has already been shut. And when the groom opens the door, you know, they knock and he opens the door, but he looks at them and he says, I don't know you. And that's, I mean, it's a strange thing for him to say in, the, in this scenario, right? Because they were a part of the, the bridal party or the, the group. They were in the gang. They were supposed to be going to the party. And yet he says, I don't know you. So the message of this parable, the overall message is that we are supposed to be ready when Jesus returns. So then the question is, what does being ready <laughs> mean? <laughs> what, is this, what's, what is the issue here? What I am not going to do for you this morning is try to give you a one-to-one correlation between what the oil represents and the lamp represents, because we really don't know, right? So you may have heard people tell you something about what it all represents, but we don't actually know, um, and so I'm not going to do that. And I don't really think that that's the point, because more than anything, I think that the groom's words, I don't know you, those point us in the direction of what it means to be ready. That's the the key. See, I think that being ready means making sure you are in right relationship with God. Now, at the most basic, basic level, this is about salvation, right? It's about accepting the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And certainly, this is first and foremost what we have to do to be ready. We need to be believers. We need to accept Christ's sacrifice for us. But I think that this passage also stands as, 
you know, sort of a gentle, maybe not so gentle, push or rebuke against those of us who would think that that's all that is needed. I get saved and it doesn't matter how I live my life. It doesn't matter what I do. If you truly believed that Jesus could return at any time, what would your prayer life look like? What would your times in the word look like? What would your devotional time look like? Now, again, I am not, the the point of me saying this is not to say you better read your word or you're going to hell. That's not what we want to do today. (laughs) I'm not sending anybody to hell. (laughs) All that I, what I think we need to take from this, though, is that our relationship with God matters. Now, I am of the theological persuasion that, you know, if you are truly a person who has, sect, has accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I don't think it's possible for you to live your life like, oh, whatever. I'm saved and I don't have to do anything else. Because that's sort of not what the Word tells us, right? Accepting Jesus Christ means welcoming the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And we know that the Holy Spirit actually does stuff, right? So that we get convicted when we're not spending time in the Word. We, we want to know our Father. We want to be in relationship with Him. But I think that, again, like from this passage, we need to say it's important. It, it, I should pray. I should talk to the Lord. I should read my word. I want to know my Father and be known by him. If anything, the overall message of this parable is that if you believe he is coming, then you ought to nurture your relationship with God. If you believe that he is coming, then you need to get ready. And those who are ready will do the work of their father. So this brings us to the second parable. And this is the parable of the talents. And in the reading today, they talked about bags of gold. And this one is is a little bit harsher than the one that came before. (laughs) So in this story, we find a very wealthy landowner. He's going off to settle, you know, accounts or do whatever wealthy landowners do. And so while he's leaving, he entrusts his wealth to three servants. And the parable tells us um, that the amount of money that each servant is given is related to, you know, their ability loosely, right? According to what they could handle. So the first servant is given five talents, and the second servant is given two talents, and then the last servant is given one talent. Um, The two servants who get multiple talents, they take those, they take that money, they go out, they put it to work, and they yield a profit. And so when the master returns, they have something to show for. But the one who who receives one talent goes and he digs a hole and puts it in the ground and doesn't do anything with it. So that when the master returns, he says, look, I didn't lose your money. (laughs) Here you go. Now, I've always read this passage, and I know that, you know, I've heard, you know, talent is money, and it was a great deal of money, and all that kind of stuff. But whenever I read this, I can't help but have this image of, like, you know, people with some little coins. And so I see the little man digging a hole and putting his little coin in the dirt, and then the other people taking their little coins and doing something. But I I imagine this minuscule amount of um, money, Um, And so one commentary I read said that the money he gave them in today's terms would have been equivalent to about $1,977,600. So um, what the man put in the ground was not a little piece of, (laughs) it wasn't a little itty-bitty coin. This was a whole lot of money. Um, a whole lot of money. And I think that that's important because as we're going to see later, I think this speaks to the character 
of the master. And, and I'm going to make that point clear a little bit later. But now, again, I always thought that it was weird that this man dug a hole and put the money in there. But then when I read that, I'm like, that is insane. Like, who would, who would do that? Why would you even think that's a good idea to put that much money in the ground? Now, in fairness to him, this was a common practice. And it makes sense. They didn't have banks in the way that we know today. So this is a way that people, I guess, would protect their assets. But still. <laughs> so as the story goes, the, ter- the, the servants who turn a profit, they get praised when the master comes back and they're rewarded. But the servant who buried his talent is not only um, rebuked, but he's punished. What he has is taken away from him. And the text tells us that he is sent out to be in darkness, where there's going to be the, the gnashing of teeth. <laughs> so if the last parable was about the importance of being ready, um, being in a right relationship with God, then this one tells us what being in that relationship ought to produce in our lives. What do I mean? Throughout this sermon series, we've been saying that, you know, what we do, our life matters to God. So there's several things I want you to take notice of here. The first thing that I want you to see, it has to do with expectation. These servants were entrusted with an extremely high amount of money. These are valuable assets that they've been entrusted with. And even though it's not communicated directly, it's very clear from the first two servants' actions that there's this understanding that they ought to do something with it. They should be working. They should be putting this master's resources to good use. And like I said, this has been driven home, I think, often in this gospel. Your life matters. What you do matters. Being saved is not just about, hallelujah, now I'm going to heaven when Jesus comes back and I'll, now I'll just muddle through life and we'll just wait and maybe he'll come back and when, or I'll die and one day I'll get to see his face in glory. That's not what salvation is about. We have been called to be ambassadors of Christ. We've been called to work in the kingdom, right? To witness. There's an understanding that we have been given something that is valuable, that is precious, that is uncomprehendably valuable, and we are supposed to put that to good use. We are supposed to work for our Father. So the first two servants understand this. They are in relationship with God, and they understand that they've been given something, and they ought to do something with it. But the second thing I want you to see and take note of is the explanation that the third servant gives for why he buried his talent. So the parable tells us that this servant was afraid because, as he says, he knew that the master was a hard man. Now, before, um, before I break this part down for us, I want to suggest to you that all of us are probably a little bit like all of the servants at some point in time in our life, right? I mean, there are times when we are on it. We are serving, we are using our gifts, we're working in the church, we're doing these things, and we feel really um, empowered, right, to go and walk boldly in the things that God has called us to do. And then there are other times where we don't feel so um, bold, (laughs) where it's a little bit uncomfortable for us to serve. We don't know what to do. It's hard to to get out there and to say and to witness, right? It's one thing to, to share the gospel with people you know and love, and you know they're going to love you no matter what. It's another thing to share the gospel with a stranger, right, and try to figure out what that relationship looks like. We all kind of wrestle 
with this. I know this is true for me. So, I mean, I don't know that I will ever have a moment in my life where preaching is something that I can say comes easy to me. But for the most part, I'm comfortable, relatively comfortable doing this. I can, this is the way I can serve God in church. Now, when I hear Pastor David talk about his vision for the youth ministry and, you know, this idea that we want all of us in this church to take the youth under our wings and develop relationships with them, I think that's awesome. But that freaks me out. (laughs) That is just, I did not like youth when I was a youth. Like, I like them theoretically, right? You know, I want to create a better world for the children. I want the, but I don't, you know, there's just... Yeah, so, so that is, that's hard for me. And I think that, that that's true for all of us. There are things that we feel more, you know, gifted in or able to do, but it's sometimes harder when God is calling us to be stretched in a direction that we don't necessarily want to be stretched in. Like this servant, I think that, um, that for the same reason, this man's misunderstanding of God, I think that that's why we sometimes struggle as well. So this servant believes that this man, that God, this master, is a hard man. And I think that sometimes, if we're honest, we have this vision of God as, you know, either someone who's not going to catch us when we fall, or worse, someone that's going to whack us if we mess up. And so it makes it harder for us to feel like we can step out on faith and do the things that we've been called to do. It's important for us to understand and have a right understanding of the Father, to know him. Now, I say we're kind of like this servant, because I think that for the most part, you know, if you are a believer, your life is not going to be categorized as one of fearfulness, one where you buried your talent and never did anything. Yes, we'll probably mess up here and there. We struggle along the way. But this servant is a little bit different. This isn't just a, um, oops, this is, the, this is how his, his mission, his life was sort of categorized. He did not know his master. He did not understand this master. And think about this man. Okay, he doesn't sound hard at all. Yes, the, the last few words that he says to the servant sound a little bit harsh. But let's think about his actions throughout this parable. Again, I always had in my mind five little pity coins this was a huge amount of money. This was an unfathomable amount of money that he entrusts to these servants. Now, it was common practice for business people, businessmen at the time, to do this. They would go off and they would entrust their resources to someone to manage them while they were gone. But not this amount of resources. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> In our day and time, this is a whole lot of money, right? So you can imagine. I mean, this, is, this was unheard of. And yet he entrusts it to these servants. And not only does he entrust it to them, but it says that he does it according to their own ability. So he doesn't give the man who got the two talents and could manage two talents five talents. He doesn't overwhelm anybody. He says, I'm going to give you what I know you can handle, what I know you can manage. And think of the reward. At the end, when he comes back and he returns Both men, the man with the five who turns it into ten, the man with the two who turns it into four, they are praised equally, and they share in the same reward. And what is that reward? It's not just, you did a good job. Here, take a few coins and go on home. He says, you get to come and share in my happiness. You get to be with me. That's huge. This doesn't sound like a hard man at all. 
This doesn't sound like someone who you should have feared to the point that you are paralyzed. So what this tells us is that this third servant is not someone who messed up along the way. This is someone who was not in relationship with the master. He was not ready. Our understanding of our father and of the kingdom is something that we are going to spend the rest of our lives trying to work out, right? (laughs) And like I said before, there are going to be times where you will miss the mark. There are going to be times where God calls you to do something and you drag your feet way longer than you should drag your feet. There are going to be times when we mess up. But again, our lives, if we are ready, if we are in relationship with God, will not be categorized as people who are constantly failing, who don't ever get it right. Because the good news is that we do have a Holy Spirit who will help us get it right. Because God wants us to get it right. So this isn't, again, about judgment or condemnation for those people who are in relationship with God. But it again, it points to the fact that those who are not will be judged. Again, it sounds so harsh. But I promise it's good news, and I'm going to tell you why at the end. (laughs) So if you believe he is returning, get ready. Those who are ready will do the work of the Father. Those who do not do the work of the Father will be judged. So now we are at the last parable. And this one is by far the harshest. And if you've noticed, the punishments get worse and worse. So in the first one, you know, the, the groom says to the women, I don't know you. In the second one, the man is stripped of what he has and cast out into darkness. And now in this one, we actually see hell, right? They are, they are sentenced to eternal punishment in hell. <laughs> and so what we see from this is if the other two parables were, um, you know, harsh teaching points, right? This one definitely is about the final judgment, Another way to say it is the other two might be correctives, right? Uh, Things to make us think about our own lives and how we are relating to God and how we are moving through the world. This one is talking to us about what it's going to be like truly at the end when the final judgment comes. So in this parable, the Son of Man, Jesus, has returned and like Unlike the previous verses that are a little bit vague, and I mean, this is clear. This is Jesus we're talking about. It's not the master. It's not the bridegroom. This is Jesus. And he's sitting on his throne, and it says he will call the nations to himself and separate the sheep from the goat. Now, if you, and not that I think any of you are, but if any of you are sheep or goat herders, this passage... This passage would sound crazy. And the only reason I, I say this, because a couple Sundays ago, I was, and Beth, I don't think Bethany's here, but I was sitting next to Bethany, and one of the parables Pastor David was preaching on was the, the hen spreading her wings over the chicks. And, um, and she said to me, I've ne- you know, I've never seen that happen. And she grew up on a farm. She's like, now I've never seen, she, in fairness, she had never seen a fire and see what the hens do. But, you know, this analogy, it, it made me think, like, there are people who grew up on farms, right? Like, there are people who might, you know, know these kind of things. So I'm going to say this. Um, this would have sounded strange to sheep and goat herders of today because sheep and goats apparently don't typically flock together. That makes sense. I don't, I don't know that I've seen sheep and goats together in the zoo, which is the only place I've ever seen <laughs> But they don't usually flock together. But I guess in this region of the world at that time and possibly still today, this was common. Like you would see sheep and goats running together in flocks. 
and they often would look similar. So the people hearing this, hearing Jesus say this, would have, this would have made sense to them. They would have had, been able to call forth an image of this flock, this strange flock, and Jesus separating people in this way. And so the goats are put on the left side, the sheep are put on the right side, and Jesus gives praise to the sheep. And the praise is that, you know, you fed me when I was hungry, you clothed me when I was naked, you welcomed me when I was a stranger, you visited me when I was in jail, and so you are rewarded. Well done. And to the goat, he says, you know, you did not do any of those things. And so now you are going to be punished eternally. So what the first thing I want you to, um, to take note of is um, the servant's response the servants who are praised, their response. So when, when Jesus says to them, you know, when I was sick, when I was naked, when I was hungry, when I was in prison, you did all of these things, they're shocked, right? They're kind of like, when did we do any of that for you? Because they have no memory of ever having entertained Jesus in this way, entertained the king in this way. And what this tells us is that the actions, they're, they're moving through the world, the things that they did, it wasn't because they were trying to get a reward, Right? Too often, I think our Christian lives get, get you know, sort of painted in that we got to do the right things, and we got to do it because we got to get to have, don't mess up, because you got to make sure you're on point. But that's not where these people were coming from. They were moving through life as believers, as faithful servants, and they were doing what that life would call them to do, right? They weren't thinking about trying to get something or trying to do the right thing. They just did it. And I want to say to you today that that's because, again, they had the Holy Spirit inside of them that was prompting them and leading them and moving them and directing them. So that's good news for us, right? We don't have to be hung up on, am I making sure that I did everything that I was supposed to do? Can I go down my checklist of things? If we live our lives as faithful servants, if we are ready, if we take care to nurture our relationship and to know the Father, we will do the things that the Father has called us to do. We won't We can't help but to do the things that the Father has called us to do. Again, will we mess up? Absolutely. But ultimately, we will serve the Father. What this shows, again, is that their actions were motivated by relationship, not out of fear, not out of duty, but relationship. What this also shows us, what this passage in general also shows us, is that those who are not in that kind of relationship will indeed um, be punished. And like I said at the beginning and throughout that, I, I want to argue today that judgment, this punishment is actually good news. And let me go ahead and tell you what I mean by that. So a while back, um, Pastor Peter, and he's the pastor of the new community congregation that meets in Logan Square. So he preached this sermon and I cannot tell you what the sermon was about (laughs) um, at all. I don't even remember the passage, but there was a moment in this sermon where he started to talk about God's judgment and hell. And he um, quoted this theologian who, um, he's, I don't remember what country this man is from. It tells you a lot. The part that was significant was really significant, and I remember it, and that's what I'm going to share with you now. But this theologian lives in a country that is not America, and it's a country where there's been a lot of war and um, just horrific things that, that people see on a regular basis. And so... Um, 
what this man says, and I'm paraphrasing, is basically that he's talking about hell, and he says one of the reasons why Americans in general, most Americans struggle with the idea of hell, is that we have not um, truly experienced evil. Right? So if you live in a place where children, like children, are raped and killed, where you see extreme violence sanctioned by your government, where there are campaigns of genocide and mass murders, right? When you see, when that's your daily reality, you, evil is palpable and tangible. It's not this far off concept that we, you know, like, what is good? What is evil? Like, no, you have very visible, very real, clear understandings of what evil is. It is impossible to believe in a loving God and not also believe in some kind of eternal punishment. Hell makes a whole lot of sense when your children are being brutalized. Does that make sense? So like I said, I, for, my, for most of my Christian life, have struggled with the idea of hell. But when I heard Pastor Peter preach that sermon, when I heard him say that, for the first time in my life, hell started to make a little bit of sense. I was like, I can... I can I can, I can kind of go there with you. So, so um, this week, those of you who know me know that I pretty much only listen to NPR in my car. I, I do only listen to NPR in my car. So I'm, I've been listening to NPR, and anybody who's been following the news, we know what's going on in the Middle East. Like, things have just, it's crazy right now, right? And so I was listening, and they were talking about this story, and some of you may have heard it. Um, this Libyan woman um, had been pulled over at a, or captured at a checkpoint, at one of Gaddafi's checkpoints, and she'd been captured by soldiers. They took her, they had tortured and raped her repeatedly, um, and just done violence to her. And she somehow managed to escape, and she runs to a hotel where a lot of foreign um, uh, media folk were staying. And she comes in and, you know, she's hysterical, she's screaming, and she's telling them what has happened to her. She's a Muslim woman, and yet she pulls up her, um, her dress, that's not the word for it, but she pulls that up to show them what they've done, and that's, I mean, that's unheard of at this time. So she is, like, frantic and hysterical, and what happens to her is they're trying to understand her, they're trying to understand what's going on, and she is eventually captured by the authorities. She's helped by the, the people in the hotel help them get her. And they actually start fighting off media people who were trying to help her. They throw a hood over her head or a coat over her head and throw her into a van. And um, the man on NPR who's recounting these, this event, he's saying, you know, we have no idea where she is. We don't know what has happened. They've been trying to find out. So I'm listening to him talk through the events. And, you know, I'm driving and I, I feel cold and stiff and just horrible, but then they play audio. So apparently when she, when she came in, obviously all these media people, somebody recorded, and you hear her screaming, you hear her pleading, and you have, I have no idea what she was saying, but I know exactly what she was saying. And I cannot, I have not been able to shake that sound. I have been praying for her since I heard that, and um, honestly, a couple uh, nights ago, I was praying, and I couldn't bring myself to pray anything but God, you know, you take her life. Because I, the thought of what might be happening to her now is more than I can even wrap my mind around. 
And so I couldn't even pray anything, but, you know, God, I mean, if deliver her from the wickedness that these men have planned for her, but if not, just take her life. Even if deliverance means taking her life. See, if I was ever to meet that woman, I would have absolutely no problem telling her that there is a hell and that wicked people are going to go there. I don't know how that woman could believe in a God who calls us to forgive people in the same measure that we have been forgiven. And there's no, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, well, you know, if they do this, though, that's not forgivable. We're called to forgive. We're called to love. I don't know how you can accept or believe in a God who calls you to that level of love and forgiveness unless you also believe that that God is going to judge. You don't have to carry the hate. You don't have to carry the anger. You don't have to carry all of the things that enduring that kind of evil, that kind of violence will do to you because there is a God who loves you and will judge. I don't know how you could say to that woman, your life matters to God. The things that happen to you matter to God unless you could also say that there is a hell and it is a hot place. See, the fact that God judges is good news. Make no mistake, God is gracious. Not only does he passionately pursue us, Not only does he constantly extend mercy and grace to us and lovingly correct us and guide us, he sent his son to die on a cross for us. He is a gracious, loving, merciful, compassionate God, and we know this, right? That's the easy part to accept. Of course, God's grace and mercy and love is good news. But hear this, God's judgment is good news too, because God's judgment lets us know that he truly does love us. God's judgment is evidence of God's holiness. It's evidence of God's righteousness. It is good news. It is especially good news for those who have experienced injustice and evil in this world. I think that um, the best example of this in scripture is Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and I'm going to read it for you. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost 
from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the word of God. And this is good news. Amen. This is good news for that Libyan woman who has endured or is enduring only God knows what. This is good news for children all over the world and in this country who are going hungry daily. This is good news for people who are dying of diseases that can be cured, children who are dying of diseases that are quite curable just because they don't have the resources that they need. This is good news for people who are seeing violence in their own communities on a regular basis. This is good news for women whose bodies have literally been declared battlefields by ruthless dictators. This is good news. This is good news for people who suffer. This is good news for us because we have been called to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters wherever they may be. And it's good news for us because it tells us, it proves to us, it shows us that God is a loving, gracious, holy, righteous God. Wickedness will be punished and that is good news. I told um, Carlos today, this morning, my sermon went in a completely different place than I thought it was going to go. Who in the world knew that the girl who almost didn't become a Christian because of hell was going to spend the bulk of her time (laughs) talking about hell? (laughs) But I want to say to you, because I I definitely don't want anyone to walk out of here not understanding this point. Often hell is used as something to sort of scare people into Christianity. You don't, you don't want to wake up tomorrow dead and find that you're going to hell. Like, and sure, we, you don't want to wake up tomorrow dead and find that you're going to hell, right? No, but that, that's not what this is, right? You should not walk out of here afraid. Am I going to go to hell if I don't read my Bible? Am I going to go to hell if I did? That's not what any of this is about. The ultimate message of these passages is, yes, God has called us into relationship with him. Those of us who are in relationship, we don't have to fear condemnation. We don't have to fear this because Jesus took that on the cross, right? Jesus took that judgment. So we're not, we don't have to worry about, are we the, are we the wicked servant? Are we the, the unwise virgins? That's not what I want you to do. Yes, I don't want you to take this lightly. We should nurture our relationship with God. We should pray, we should read our scripture, but that comes because we love the Lord, not because we're afraid of going to hell. Hell is good news, not because it'll get more people in the door. Hell is good news because it means God is righteous and holy and loving. God's judgment is a part of his love. Um, Worship team, you can come back up. If they're not up already. (laughs) Um, if you bow your head and just pray with me, I want to close this time in prayer. God, I thank you that you are a loving, righteous, holy, merciful, gracious God. I thank you that your character is one we can trust. I thank you that you love us and that you call us constantly. You seek after us constantly. You draw us close to you. You draw close to us. God, I pray that that each and every person in this room 
would take comfort in that, Lord. And God, I also pray for every person who is facing evil, who is experiencing wickedness. I pray for every person in this world for whom those terms are not abstract ideas. They can put their finger on it. They can point to the moment, the minute that it happened, that it is happening. God, I pray that you would deliver them, Jesus. I pray that you would intervene, God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word is good news to them. Because you will come. You will wipe every tear from their eye. And wickedness will be punished. God, we exalt you. We bless your name because you are awesome. God, I pray that you would remind us daily that you are awesome and that there is absolutely no part of you that we need fear or turn away from or shy away from. You are an awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen. ought to be ready and those of us who are ready will do the work of our father and it is good news that those who do not do the work of their father will be judged evilness wickedness cannot stand in his presence and that is good news be blessed new community i'll see you next sunday